Welcome back to the Collective Nightmares podcast. This is Laura. <laughs> I'm sorry. You were already talking. I know. I was just. I didn't. But I. We didn't decide who was gonna. If you were gonna introduce me, or if we were gonna introduce each other. So we're not. Okay. Um, <laughs> Doing we, anything? <laughs> give me a moment of, of silence, and then say your thing again, please. This is Laura. And this is Marshall, and horror films are our collective nightmares. Our podcast is a sociological exploration of horror films, and we are both sociologists. We have PhDs in sociology, and now we're here talking about horror movies. This is how we choose to use them. <laughs> yes. I like that. In, in, or at least one of those ways. There will be spoilers in this episode. There are spoilers in every episode. We watched Martin, the 1976 film by George Romero of Night of the Living Dead and other fame. And there usually ends up being spoilers for Martyrs. (laughs) (laughs) Just throw that out there. Yep. So just generally speaking, if you're going to listen to the podcast, which we very much appreciate... You should watch Martyrs. Uh, <laughs> okay. This was a Laura pick, which is... I pick more films for whatever reason than Laura does, so... Two in a row. Wiener Dog and... Oh, yeah. You got two in a row. Well, and then we have, like, three or four lined up that are... I mean, they're kind of my picks, but they're also kind of what's playing. So it's not like I just chose them out of a hat. So spoilers for this episode... R4 Martin, the film we're discussing, It Comes at Night, minor spoilers for It Comes at Night, and minor spoilers for Romero's original Night of the Living Dead. Definitely you should watch Martin before you listen to the episode. We, we kind of count on you having, having it pretty fresh in your mind because we just launched into discussion. We're going to look at the IMDb summary. A young man who believes himself to be a vampire goes to live with his elderly and hostile cousin in a small Pennsylvania town where he tries to redeem his blood-craving urges. Very minor spoilers for Blade. Do you want to tell us how you decided to watch Martin? So we got feedback on a screenplay that we were working on, and the person who gave the feedback was first of all lovely and said a lot of really nice things that were great, and mentioned this movie, Martin. And I hadn't seen it and didn't know what he was talking about. He, he gave a bunch of other references, which I did get and was really charmed by. But this was the one that, yeah, I had no idea what it was. Honestly, so I, I had no idea even going into it tonight at all what it was, uh, which was kind of fun to see it that way. So yeah, someone recommended that I might like it. Um, and I did. I think it was probably my favorite vampire movie. That is a relatively low bar for me, I will say. I don't, you, Marshall, appreciate a good mythology more than I do, I think. So vampires are, generally speaking, not really up my alley. But um, yeah. Oh, vampires are so great. Have you read Dracula? <laughs> yeah, probably. A long time ago. I think probably. I did. I think I did. Yes, I, I do. I do very much enjoy vampire. I mean, it's sex and, sex and violence, right? Hard for me not to like that. Okay, so you enjoyed it. Yeah, and I will say on the sex and violence topic, this was an interesting almost point on the spectrum from our big long series on rape revenge films. It's a very different take on sexual assault, which is maybe interesting. Oh, are we going to start there? No, we don't have to. I guess we're, I guess. Yeah, the film just completely glossed over the fact that apparently he was raping these women, which I didn't get until his voiceover... Where it's like, well, I have have sex with them, just not when they're awake. And it's like, (laughs) you're a rapist, dude. I understand this is 1976. But yeah, that was, uh, that was problematic, to say the least. I was, I was very on board with him. And it bothered me how sympathetic he was as a character. And that was all well and good. 
until until they threw that in there. And I really don't think it needed to be in there. I don't think you needed to be having sex with them while while they were asleep. God, I'm such People are going to end up hating me for this podcast. Or I'm going to end up firing or something. I just had the thought of, well, maybe if you waited until they were dead, it wouldn't be as bad. <laughs> so I had a similar thought in going down the same road, only in that they don't ever wake up, right? That's what I just put to, so, I went through in the process of my mind. It's like, well, I'm they're not, not going to ever wake up, but shouldn't you wait till they're actually dead, not just passed out or dying? Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, I don't... I don't I'm not going to answer that question. I'm just going to. They just leave me holding that bag. I'm just going to say that I went down the same road and I wasn't really sure at what point you draw that line if there is a line. I mean, it's still kind of bad if somebody's dead. They didn't have to experience it, but then they don't have to experience it if they don't wake up. I don't know if this is where we need to leave this podcast. No, I don't either. But yes, is that what you're thinking when you said rape revenge? Well, okay, in general, but I think he was supposed to be a sympathetic character. And I see why he was recommend why this was recommended in the vein of the screenplay that, that I worked on, because that part was similar. Like that he really wanted some kind of human connection. And he was also doing something really terrible, but sort of for pretty good reasons, right? And in this case, I mean he was a vampire, presumably he had to kill people, I guess. Presumably. He had to eat their blood or something. And so it wasn't you know, he wasn't trying to be mean, he was trying to do it in the nicest way he possibly could. And he also really wanted, like, he was a shy guy who just really wanted some connection with a woman. And I guess he was wrapping that all up in one. Yes. So he would drug drug them, drink their blood, have sex with them, which we didn't see on camera at all, or on screen at all, and then wait. And I guess that is... uh, as vampires go, the sort of nicest way you could do that. And as far as rape or goes, one of that's the probably nicer one of the ways. nicer ways. <laughs> I suppose. Uh, it, it is given that the victims are then dead. I mean, you know, it's a whole different world if you wake up and you know that you've been attacked, but you, even if you don't remember it, it's still... That would be a whole different story, but yes, like you said, they're kill- he's killing them, so... There's no waking up and realizing you've been assaulted. It was like, I guess all I'm thinking is it was an interesting point on the spectrum for having so many conversations about the rape revenge genre that here we have a case where somebody is clearly a rapist, obviously, not really presented as such. At first, I didn't know if he was even having sex with them. It was just unclear in general what was happening. It was. Until later. Until the voiceover. Yeah. And then it was, yeah, it was sort of thrown in there as a side note. But it was also then strikingly different from what we've seen because there was no sex on screen. There was no even, even the consensual sex was bizarrely absent. I got confused in that scene. Like, what happened? Wait, oh, okay, wait, they just completely skipped all that. It was very, and there was no, there was no like glorifying violence, right? Nobody would watch this and enjoy the violence because there really wasn't any. So it was, it was all about the struggle, I guess, of somebody who, has good motivations and has some reason why he has to hurt somebody. And then they used a vampire as to have an externally imposed reason why he had to do it. And so it, it really was almost like a drama about his character. But that is an interesting juxtaposition to the things we've seen recently. Yes, it is. And there was no sex on, on screen, like you said. It wasn't glorified. There was some nudity. The vast majority was, was women. But it was, there's just, again, there's something about the nudity in the 70s, or at least in that era-ish, that is just like, it's just there, rather than whatever we do now. That was a totally not descriptive piece of that. We talked about that in the Fit on Your Grave, the old one, which was 70, which was what? Do we know? 70-something. 78, so... Okay, so two years after this, I, I, I do understand why uh, why Ben suggested it for you because it was that yeah it was there was all of that and then there was the bizarre like or not bizarre I don't know maybe where he's 
basically manipulating or gaslighting his grandfather. I'm not. The, the series of scenes where he mocks his grandfather's belief that he's a vampire by showing him that there's no magic or dressing up as a stereotypical vampire and then pointing out it's just a costume. Meanwhile, he actually is <laughs> doing exactly what grandfather or is accusing him of doing. So I guess given the final scene, grandfather was not convinced. Did he really deny being a vampire or did he deny being that kind of vampire? I, what is that kind of vampire? Nosferatu? Well, I, thought, I thought he was denying like being the kind of vampire that you'd see in a movie. I didn't necessarily think he was arguing that he wasn't, technically speaking, a vampire, but just that he wasn't, oh, like, it's not about garlic. It's not. Oh, really? I thought, no. Well, what would be, I mean, what would be the point of that distinction? I suppose that's possible. I don't know. I guess that's how I took it when he was like, it's not about magic, or it's not the magic, or he was arguing about the mythology, I guess, not maybe that. Yeah, okay. That could be that could be right and that would make sense. That would make sense with the rest of the film because I felt like this was I drew parallels between this and Frank Miller's Dark Knight graphic novel which and I think it was also Frank Miller who worked on Swamp Thing and those were really pioneer comics Dark Knight in particular because it complicated superheroes right it, it 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 made batman not necessarily this just dressed up and he's great and he's got this it you know then he's got all these other problems and he's tormented by i don't know whatever the ethics of it and he's all this which happened in comics late 70s early 80s and this very much made me think of that because it's like, okay, it's sort of been reverse. Sort of taking like this quote-unquote superhero and bringing all this complexity and, I don't know, behind backstage behavior. Look at that, some sociology. <laughs> <laughs> some backstage, or a lot of backstage rather, into, into it. In this case, they still took took a vampire so with a bad character rather than a good character and brought in all this backstage of how he's actually really trying to be good. There's a lot of parallel there. And like you said, try sympathetic and, and humanize him. It was an interesting film for that reason. Uh, before I say anything else, I, so I, I guess I was trying to think about where it connected with your screenplay of one, just like you said, this it, it, these these nuanced and particular ways of of drawing distinctions that are what what's ethical, what's not, and characters that are really rich and real. And so, yeah, I, I mean, that made me definitely, definitely is your kind of thing. One thing I'll just throw out, we don't have to answer it now, but is that I think in in our screenplay, the whole idea was to present an ethical dilemma and then present at least maybe an add-on answer exactly, but, but a proposed answer to it, you know, like what if you want to do bad for all the right reasons? And this screenplay is kind of ours was about delusion, right? And how people use delusion to get by, I guess, in the face of things that are really hard. And, and I think if there is a take-home message, the take-home message was that that's normal. Everybody does that. But at the same time, you have to be really careful because your delusions, when they start leaking over into other people's rights and other, and you, you know, you can take that as far as war, for example, and like, yay, we want to wave the flag. But what that means in terms of somebody else's life is something that can be very damaging if you just jump on the like rah-rah nationalist bandwagon, right? All the way to engaging in any kind of like, any kind of negative behavior towards somebody else where you like, you, oh, maybe they want it, maybe they, whatever, like that, that kind of delusion, right, can get very, um, it, when it starts encroaching on other people's rights, that's a problem. And this one, I kept looking for that because they, so they set up the same structure with, okay, he has this reason why, it's not because he's a bad guy, but he's got this reason. In our case, it was just like a compulsion. In this case, it's some 
technicality where he has to drink blood, whatever. He's got some reason why he has to do bad, but he clearly is a good guy and doesn't want to do bad. And I kept looking for just some sort of referendum, whether they presented it as like, here's the answer or just like, here's maybe an answer or here's his answer. Do you think it's right? And I don't really know what it was. I was waiting for it at the end. And it seems like there's something to be said for the fact that the only person he slept with killed herself. Like, and then he, he kind of ends up saying like, well, you don't need that or you don't need to, what interact with people or what exactly he was landing on. But I, I was looking for like a cohesive message around that idea. And I don't know that I found it. Um, but at some point I would like to touch on that because that's, that's one thing I would like to have seen. I, as you were talking particularly about delusion, I was thinking he was very not deluded. <laughs> he, he had no delusions. He knew what he was doing. He knew, he knew he was a, a bad for people. He knew what he was doing was wrong. Like you said, that I mean, he tried to handle that essentially as well as he could have. And he had learned that isolating himself was really the best thing. So he was sort of a noble, trying to be noble in that regard. So it was really interesting because he sort of then stood back. If you're talking about delusion, how everybody has some sort of peace. And he watched and commented on all the silly things that people do. Like he was up on high and detached. Maybe he was for whatever he supposedly however old and whatnot. That does point, raise the question again, whether or not he was deluding his grandfather or whether or not he was just trying to clarify to his grandfather that, like you said, he was, he never denied being a vampire. Just uh, there was no magic, which is, that's just an interesting it's an interesting film, and, and those are things, things like that, instead of a religious and a magical origin story or mythology for a vampire, we're going to go with a, a familial, scientific, I guess, if you will, biological explanation. Like, that was, that's really an interesting, and I would say, I can't, I would, that'd be the first to me. And like you said, this need, he's really a good, person but has to drink blood so he's trying to manage that i mean that anticipates a lot of films i'm thinking blade also true blood basically the entire premise is that there are decent vampires who have synthesized blood so that they don't have to consume human blood anymore and there was one other i was thinking i'll think of but that's that's a cool idea so it was innovative and i definitely appreciate it for that the delusion part, I, I, that I don't really have more for you off the top of my head. Well, and I don't, I wouldn't say this one was about delusions, but I, I guess I'm just saying that ours had that as an underlying, I don't know if you want to go so far as to say message, but at least idea that, that we were trying to throw out there. And in this one, I kept looking for what that, I, if they had an idea that they were trying to throw out there and what it was, because, because it very much, I mean, I think in dropping the whole, mythical whatever origin story of the vampires it very much did effectively what it comes at night did which we need to maybe re-see that and repost a podcast on that because i think we weren't able to record ours but i always want to come back to so many good things about it comes at night but one huge one in terms of my preferences they didn't give any unnecessary silly backstory to whatever was going on they only gave you what mattered and that was perfectly sufficient for the rest of the movie you know so you didn't spend a bunch of what to me feels like wasted time. If you only have an hour and a half or two hours with somebody and you're trying to hopefully get across some kind of message, I would like you to spend your time actually trying to address it, not going off in these side tangents, what to me feels like a side tangent because I'm looking for some sort of overall meaning. And so It Comes at Night did a, a brilliant job of that. And this movie, I feel like did the same thing with the vampire stuff that by dropping, by dropping all of the backstory, I mean, aside from just like nods that those were actually interesting, different scenes I'd never seen before. It wasn't like, yeah. oh no, and the vampire's running away from the garlic. It was just, it was funny. It was a cool human interaction that it allowed for. And also by doing that, they got rid of all of the chase scenes and, you know, I can't stand a chase scene. And so they weren't necessary anymore. They got rid of, you were never afraid. You were never in the, position of the victim and afraid of him really because you never knew them you never empathized with them and 
those, that part was never long. Like there wasn't a big chase anticipation buildup. So they really focus so heavily on the experience of this person who wants to be good, but has this reason why they need to be bad and, and how he's struggling, which was cool. Like I appreciate any movie that just can take its message seriously enough and has enough to say that it, it's going to throw away like the easy, it'd be really easy to throw in a chase scene. It'd be really easy to throw in some cool spooky vampire or whatever. And they just let it all go. Just like, again, like it comes at night when they just totally let apocalypse something rather on whatever zombies, who knows, don't go out at night. We don't care. (laughs) (laughs) That's so good. That's so good. But again, that left me at the end of it, just feeling like, okay, so what were they trying to get at? Was it just seeing the experience of this person trying to be good? Or was there some sort of like, commonality that they're trying to like, like just a something that comes up in humanity that they were trying to tap into because it seemed like a great opportunity for that. And if so, I just don't know what it was like ours was delusion. What was theirs? I don't know if they had one. I completely agree with you. And I agree. And I really appreciated how the violence scenes were shot where it was just, it's, this is just part of his life. He's got to deal with it. It's sort of like a job. It was just, it wasn't, it was just, okay, this is something I got to do. And the camera had reflected that. There was no no Dutch angles. There were no fancy cuts. There were no, there was no, I don't know, lingering or, or gratuitous piece of any of that. Even when he surprised, he thought the woman was alone and there was the guy there and it turned into, there was some chase. It was really just him trying to manage the situation. It wasn't a chase, which I agree with you on that, which was also really nice. It was, okay, well, shit, you know? (laughs) (laughs) All right, now I got to drug her, and I guess I got to drug him more because he's bigger than I thought, and I didn't calculate right, and I got to do this and that. And But yeah, it was just very like, I was just saying, it's like a bad day at work. It wasn't dun-dun-dun. Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah, and you never emotionally were in a position of empathizing with the victim. Really, not more so than, I mean, everybody was human, whatever. But you weren't sitting there scared for them, like, what's he going to do? Which which I think disqualifies it as a chase scene. If you kind of want them to get caught just because, like you said, it's, it's like, yeah, something went wrong at work and you want to just see them clean it up. And you kind of know where it's going eventually. That's interesting, too. I mean, if anything... I would say Romero almost flipped that because there were so many scenes where it was, I don't know if that's flipped or not. I was thinking there's so many scenes where he's like in the shadows or you just see like his eye. I was thinking that's how victims would be. They would be the ones who are like hiding. The victims were always out in the light and maybe that is typical because I guess you do see it. There was, but there was no monster cam. There was no, I don't think you ever got from his point of view, did you? I think we ever got, but we we never got anybody's point of view. It was always a external camera, which I think is part of that kind of detached. Is that detached? And yet, you were saying that makes me think that if anything, the overall message of the film was was basically a vampire as like a sympathetic character. It's like just a struggling, sort of working. I, I don't know why I keep going back into work, but a, a struggling living Joe. So maybe it was just an exercise in empathy. Maybe. And that connection. I think, if anything, it really was a connection. Because what do we do? We meet Kuda. No, before we even meet Kuda, he attacks this woman on the train. We get our first flashback to he wishes he could have some sort of connection with her. His flashback, I interpret that, interpreted that as... Oh, what if she looked at me and she was just surprised and thought this was romantic or whatever, and it was all this delusion? I guess that was, or not? Maybe it wasn't delusion, but it was wish, hope, hopefulness. It was this is what I wish was happening. So he wants that connection. He can't have it. He he must kill her, or he does kill her, so he can feed. Then Kuda, his own grandfather, barks at him, and barely acknowledges him other than to say so then he's completely distant and then you've got you got him watching all these people like how do you connect yeah i think it really is and then he's got the phone he's like he, he doesn't have anybody to talk to he really desperately wants his cousin to remember him she doesn't that was his hope 
And the grandpa introduces her with, don't talk to her. I told her not to talk to you. She will, but don't answer. Yeah. You can't talk to her. Like, even your family, your people who are supposedly good, supposed to accept you, and the one woman he can, who the cousin, who seems very nice, yeah, he's not supposed to talk to. So it's like, oh, it's so close, and he just can't. And he does say something at one point about people don't really talk to each other or something like that, right? And then there was a very, by ending the movie with the phone, the late night phone guy, like, oh, where is he? Whatever. And people calling in and saying, oh, I wrote a song about it. Or th- That felt very cool social media commentary way, way, way too early like, with a late night phone call call in radio show, you know? But that's the same kind of thing, right? So if people don't really connect. We just have this. I, I really want to go social media with it, except that this, that's clearly not what they were commenting on. But, but it's a similar same, comment. Yeah, the same motivation, right? Like a pop culture, fake sort of community, but not really. We don't really know you or care about you. You're just like a story to us. Your ratings for us. Oh, but we're going to pretend we care. And the people calling in are going to pretend they care. But really, they're just trying to hear a good story they don't actually care about your struggle like you're actually struggling and they just want a good story and now they want you to come back because they missed the story and they're going to write a song or some stupid thing about it because like nobody ever really cared about you and that was totally reinforced when the guy was like oh people are loving this you know why don't you come down to the studio he had this look of i thought we were communicating here I thought we were bonding. Or... And so the one bond then that he does have is with the woman who was with the woman who kills herself. Oh, just one real quick thing on the radio thing, Please. too. Um, when he said, what did he say? Oh, what did he say? Wait, did I just lose it? He said something to the radio guy that I thought really highlighted what you just said. Maybe I forgot. Oh, oh, that's it. So when, when he said to the radio guy that he was, you know, he was having a hard time choosing somebody and, you know, he, he was really struggling and he's struggling with this hard decision of who he should hurt, basically. And the radio guy is like, ooh, everybody watch out. Like the vampire might be in your neighborhood. So that's really used turning it into, it's like the bad news kind of thing, right? Like turning it into fear to spook people because we're all going to find that fun. Like that's clearly not a real connection. If somebody says to you, first of all, I'm struggling. Secondly, in some form, like I might hurt someone innocent, basically. There's nothing about that to be like, ooh, goody. But the radio guy immediately turns it into that kind of feeling. Like everybody have fun being scared and let's hope it's not your neighbor who dies. Yay. It's, it's like the, the bad part of, isn't there a word for that? The bad part of you that would be like happy if there's a serial killer because it's like something super exciting. Or like, you know, the hurricane just almost misses the city and everybody's like, oh man, that would have been a cool news story to watch all those people suffer. <laughs> like, whatever that instinct is, I feel like the radio guy played right into that. Yes, I, I very much agree with that. So I'm going to jump back to, so if all of this is about connection and how he's either isolated himself or is isolated and then the one connection that he does have results in her committing suicide, grandpa thinking that he killed her, and then murdering him. That's pretty pessimistic. The message I would take away from that is, at least for Martin, I don't know about broader, but its connection is at best temporary and ultimately is going to lead to disaster. So you all should just never speak to each other or, or do anything other than like transact business. <laughs> Which is basically what he says at the end, right? Isn't that his thing? He said, you know, I guess I don't need that or I guess I shouldn't. I don't remember exactly how he said it. Yeah, he says you don't need it or you really don't, I think is what he says. Which I, I don't like that as much as if he had said... I wish I didn't need it or or I can't have it even though I do need it. And I think that would have been a better line because he was obviously very happy with that connection. It was not, oh, I don't need it. It was, I tried it and it was great and now I'm traumatized or now I'm, now I hurt even more because I'm missing what I didn't know I could have. You know, that could be a real fine tuning of the, of that line or me over-reading the very specifics of that line. But that's much more how I took it. I mean, he was happy with Homegirl. Abby? That, that could also... It could be like, this is what happened to him, as in people do this. Like, you shut down because it's too hard and it doesn't work out or whatever. So not that, like, 
by him saying that we were supposed to know that it's not that he doesn't need it. It's just that he's decided not to, which maybe is its own message in a way. Because yeah. I totally think you're right. Oh, that's a dark message. That's a pretty brutal message. It's like, let me humanize this vampire. And in doing that, I'm going to tell you a story about how he struggles with his life. And as soon as he tries to be normal, it ends up in disaster and death. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm not saying that's wrong. That's it. But it's just, it's so funny because I guess that's funny to me because the tone of the film didn't strike me as that dark. It was more, it was just, it was, it was really just felt like a drama. I mean, you know, if it was, if it was, if it was any addiction other than blood, it would have been another, I, I, it's been so long since I've seen those movies, but whatever the Nick Nolte movie is about addiction, there were a few in the seventies. I, I feel like where it was this struggle of what do you do for your addiction and how do you interact with everyday life? How do you negotiate relationships? Because there is so much danger in relationships, particularly if you're an addict. You know, I think the analogy would be if, if you want to have a social relationship, if you're an alcoholic and you want to have a social relationship with someone and they, there, it raises a lot more risk of you having to negotiate your alcoholism because, oh, well, let's go out to a restaurant. Well, there's alcohol there. Let's go out to wherever it is, right? There's alcohol everywhere. There's blood everywhere. Which is, I mean, it's a cool concept and it's an interesting idea. I can't think of a movie that did it earlier than this. So, and I'll have to say, I also give great credit because it was so different from Night of the Living Dead. And good for him for, like you said, <laughs> where you mentioned how much you dislike Ghostland and um, we're really struggling with Pascal Lagerre's subsequent films to Martyrs. Good for good for <laughs> Romero for making this epic, landmark film. And then following it up with something totally different. Still very interesting. I'm trying to look to see what how far apart those were. That was going to be my next question, yeah. He made a few in between. But 78 and 68, so 10 years apart. There's always Vanilla, which is which was his follow-up to Night of the Living Dead. I've never heard of in my life. Season of the Witch, The Crazies, the original. Some TV stuff. And then this. So, I had respect for Romero, certainly beyond Night of the Living Dead, but I don't think I fully appreciated. Because I've heard good things about Season of the Witch and The Crazies also. Then I saw the remake, but I hadn't seen the original. Anyway, all right, I got off down in my little rabbit hole of Romero. Did you see that he had a cameo in the movie? Yes. That was pretty cool. Yeah, priest, mm-hmm. right? Apparently before he went to the real heavy rim glasses. Yeah. <laughs> Let me ask you this then. Why, why do the flashbacks in this black and white and as the, the style that they did? You go, because I was going to ask exactly the same thing, because I didn't know. So, if you have an idea. My idea was, they're doing all this to, to modernize the vampire mythology. Oh. So, this is, so that all of that is how they used to be filmed. I mean, that was all Nosferatu. And, like, the hammer, Dracula, fog, dramatic lighting, Dutch angles, right? And they did that quite literally when they, he confronts him in the playground, I love this shit. This shit I love. The meta deconstruction of the vampire genre of the film. I mean, to do that in the film, that's at this early, that's awesome. So that's what I took from it was like, here's how it used to be with torches and whatever. <laughs> Somehow there's uplighting from everywhere <laughs> outside on a moonlit night <laughs> and it's black and white. And and then you've got that scene where it's like, look, this is all just costume. None of this is real. And I think it's along that perspective and that movement towards, towards grounding the horror in reality. So as we shifted from monsters to like people, there's, there's that real shift from, Oh, I don't know, whenever it was, the kind of the 50s, maybe 60s, 
to 70s, particularly 80s, of it used to be aliens and Dracula and whatever, all these creatures, or, or now it's just people, everyday normal people, which is, which is, I mean, Last House on the Left, and then we end up with Nightmare on Elm Street, or not Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th and Halloween. I love that, and I think you're totally right on, and that was really cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you said that. Because the whole time I was thinking, well, I don't get it. Like, why? It's really cool. Oh, it's so well done, too. There was one scene where he did, I think it's called the jump cut, where you start over six times. I don't think I've ever seen a movie, like, do that and have it be remotely okay. There was something else that was meta. I guess the whole, the, the whole Nightcaller thing was meta. I'm not really a vampire. I think that was the idea behind the horror, right? Was, well, if this guy Martin, Martin, the sort of banal name, blend right in, if he can be this vampire and none of this magic hocus pocus is real, be afraid because anybody could be a vampire, right? See, I was going to go exactly <laughs> the other way with it, actually, and say that it's like if if we don't need to focus on this crazy vampire mythology whatever stuff it's just martin he's just some guy he just wants to connect with people like martin is everybody there's enough horror just in the world and in the struggle to be good and be good and actually connect with anyone and there i mean because there has to be something to be said for the fact that the movie ended with that radio show i mean that that was i think a very big point so i'm sure the lack of compassion or empathy or something or actually desire to connect with people was meant to be a big piece of this so it's like it's like that's scarier than vampires vampires you know yeah i can see that as well and yeah i i was trying to think of what was happening kind of mid-70s you know if this was happening it, it makes me think of the bowling alone and like all these concerns about dissolution of community and i was wondering about mid-70s was much more white flight right than it was I guess there was concern about, sociologically, I'm, I'm, I'm asking, well, really it was, okay, we've got civil rights, now we've got black folks who are, who are moving into the city and working, and so white people move to the suburbs, and there's probably, I feel like I'm working back from the theory, but I, I would imagine that that came with quite a bit of anxiety about, now that we're in the suburbs, it's not small town America anymore. It's it's not Main Street, and we are further apart from each other. It's so funny because it seems like black folks in the film were really presented as threats. They're the ones harassing people in the grocery shopping lot. Lot we saw that more than once. I definitely noticed that too. Yeah, the guys in the warehouse, whatever, who end up shooting out with the cops, definitely are criminals. Clearly, obviously, right? They end up opening fire on the cops. That was probably fairly radical in the 70s, which is so... My first thought would probably be, well, that's just a... For that era, it was a fairly standard. Except Night of the Living Dead is such a comment on on racism and racial divide. It's, it would seem odd for Romero to, to present something like that. So I'm trying to think if we have support for saying something about... Maybe you could argue that. Maybe you could say, here's these folks who were who were so scared of these the black people, and meanwhile, really, they should have been afraid of is Martin. Maybe. Maybe. That seems like a stretch, though. But jump back again. The parade also made me think about that. Like, he, like, was in the parade, but, like, it was so... That was such an odd scene. But isn't the parade, like, classic small-town America, like, community together? And he, like, still wasn't part of it. And he's when he was walking, there were a couple of times I feel like he was presented with black folks. I felt like he was walking with the black kids in the parade. And it was like, I guess maybe he feels like an outsider. Like, I don't know. I, I'm shooting wild here. I like a lot of what you're saying. My mind's kind of spinning around yeah. this right now. So I don't feel like I have something solid to say. But I'm thinking it's interesting then that he was, you were definitely meant to empathize with him in the movie. And so you seem to be kind of presenting these two ideas that he was, that him being presented as the threat or maybe the threat that you should be aware of or something, but then at the same time, him being us, I feel like in the movie, like I feel like we were meant to be him. 
And so yeah. the commentary on like lack of connection or like that, that would almost come from the viewpoint of someone who wasn't accepted, which he wasn't, but someone who wasn't accepted in society wanting acceptance or wanting, right. Wanting connection, wanting whatever, and being treated just as a, a symbol and as some kind of like the radio guy, right. Some sort of sensationalist story, not a real human whose plight you should empathize with. So in that respect, I would say that he would be, he would be somebody who was oppressed by society. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I mean, it was a real cynical look because I was also thinking that everybody who supposedly has connection ends up not. I mean, the, the only person we, I guess we don't know is the woman at the very beginning on the train, but the one woman's having an affair with him. So presumably that marriage is not a great connection. The other woman having an affair with somebody else. Presumably that's not a great connection. Grandfather ends up hitting as, I don't know what the relationship between grandfather and cousin is, niece or whatever, his daughter or his young woman family member. And she leaves the house with some guy she doesn't really want to leave with just to escape him. Like nobody has any relationship at all that's actually genuine except him and Abby. And even that is problematic because she ends up killing herself over it because she feels, I guess, so guilty about cheating on her husband. Is that why? But she's the one who was saying that her husband's cheating on her all the time. That was her lead in with him. Well, then why would she? Yeah, I, don't, I wasn't sure why she killed herself if that was, or if she, I don't know, she just wasn't happy in life and didn't feel connection. Also, Grandpa, what the religion thing was interesting because there was a lot of religious focus, but they clearly showed him pursuing it for the wrong reasons. It's Sunday morning. Nobody in this house is going to be seen not in church. That's the least sincere. <laughs> People can have callings to religion for different reasons. And I think there can be very like communal connected motivations behind that. And that was, they were made, they made a clear point that that's not why he was religious. Well, he was religious because he thought it was going to help cast out the demon, the vampire in his grandkid or his cousin or his whoever the fuck martin was to him right yeah i'm much more cynical than laura is about religion so it's totally about appearance i mean maybe it's not about appearance but it is it is i I guess that's a piece of community right is the is that people expect to see you at things like that and that for me seems like pressure and hassle but for a lot of people feel you feel wanted and you feel and that's kind of how you know what's that people are okay as they always show up here and there and if they don't then you can check on them and i would say it's like a connect it's a continuation of the same emotion though like this idea that like the radio show guy him saying that people don't really talk to each other that there could be there i mean there are i'm sure religious motivations that are not what it should be about if you think about what it's kind of meant to be oh here's how you should live a moral life and you know let's all get together and think about doing good and whatever and then what what people treat it as it, there's a lot of parallel between like that and this guy calling into the radio show. This is meant to be some sort of sincere connection around something good or whatever. And instead it's this sensational, like it's so surface and it's not what it's really meant to be. And it's maybe even the exact opposite of what it's meant to be, but it's, that's what makes people happy kind of thing. I was trying to decide if that's really... Fake connection. I'm sorry. I still got stuck on, I never thought... Religion was supposed to be anything other than a pyramid scheme. <laughs> it was never supposed to be anything about, oh, you should do good and fuck all that. That was all a bunch of bullshit. It was all, it was all a scam to beginning, to begin with. And then I was trying to think, so do I think that's true about the radio show also? <laughs> and I don't know if it was true about the radio show, but regardless, I will grant you that if nothing else, people are drawn to it in part because it offers connection and to have it be what it really, I would say, should be in that sense is, is hard work. And it's very easy to get drawn in by the sense of community. Like, oh, we're all going to get together and say we're all part of the group and we're the in-group and we're good and everything's great. And instead of actually helping people or doing whatever you know we're like supposed to be doing, we're just going to feed off that surface sense of our goodness without actually doing good. That it's the same kind of thing about connection, right? We're going to feed off the surface sense of connection like a social media kind of thing or something. I have eight bazillion friends and whatever, and everybody cares everything I have to say without actually having the underlying 
real connection that's supposed to be there. All right. By the way, you can follow us on Twitter <laughs> and Instagram. <laughs> Collective Nightmares on Instagram. Does it help that this is my like first foray into social media? So when you hear me commenting on the evils of social media. Uh, I just couldn't resist <laughs> plugging that in there. Now I lost track of what I was actually going to say. So oh, oh, the church scene was also so unusual. When do you ever see a church scene? There was no sermon. It was, go home, sell your extra shit so we can rebuild our church. Which was, I couldn't tell you of another movie where they didn't at least have the end of it. Or like people in the pews or the rows or wherever they're sitting looking at the minister or the preacher or whatever as he ends and they pray and everybody says amen. And then like after church you talk about or pass around the collection plate and it's like yeah you know if you can donate some extra we had this we got to rebuild we need everybody to dig deeper but it was we need your money not like you said because you were talking about whether or not people you're they're really helping there's no helping anyone it was we need to rebuild our church was like totally just perpetuation of the institution which i would argue is also basically what religion is but that's but it was a very unusual church scene for a film and and it was, I don't know what, but it was that was very interesting. It was. It was just an interesting set that. as well. It was the weirdest looking inside of a church I think I'd ever seen. Yeah. Uh, well, it was supposed yeah. to have been burned. Yeah. Or whatever, but yeah, it was just kind of cool. It was. It was very different. Yeah, there was there because there was no magic to it. Yeah. Which I would yeah. agree with Roberto. That's pretty much what church should be. You just go. They should ask you for your money, and then you go the fuck home. Go with your life. <laughs> All the rest of it is bullshit anyway. <laughs> see, I see. I can feed all of my preconceived notions <laughs> by virtue of uh, how I interpret and read the film. <laughs> At least you're willing to admit it. I appreciate that. Romero and I were like this. <laughs> There's no light between us on religion. <laughs> Or do you have more to say? I thought it was great. No, I think yeah, that was gonna be my last question. Like overall, what's your what's your take on? You like it? I enjoyed it. It was it was slow, but it was slow with purpose. It was very uh, character driven. I, I would be curious. I'm kind of surprised that. I, I mean, I thought Martin he was a was very well acted. I can't say I've ever seen him in anything else. I wonder if he. It said introducing him. It did. So it was his first major role. And he ended up doing 20 films, several with Romero. So he did some more, but apparently it wasn't, didn't like break out or anything. Six upcoming projects. Okay, well, maybe he's making a comeback. I was going to thank Caitlin Durante of the Bechdel cast. We, as we're trying to figure out this whole podcast thing, reached out to her and she was super genuine and super generous and just a cool person. She freely gave us advice and met with us and we went and saw, and then I was going to say, did you want to, maybe we'll do this as an outtake or something. We went and saw her do stand-up comedy in Boulder. That was its own horrific experience. I don't know if I want to restart that conversation now at okay. one o'clock in the morning. Okay. Um, it was, but maybe we can we can do that one if that's okay. So we can just say thanks. Next time. She was great. She was great. She was totally great. There was no horrificness in her no section at all. Just to be clear on that. No, she was the like breath of air. <laughs> yeah. In her otherwise just caustic bath of toxicity <laughs> i think for how late it is that sums it up fine for now okay yeah i overall i would say i really like this film and again i like it a lot more for us having had this conversation so yeah. this was really it was fun it helped me kind of put my thoughts in order about it yeah it was good we now have a patreon page susan thank you she's our first patreon subscriber we have a, a discussion up about why we are spending all this time and energy talking about horror. That's our first Patreon 
exclusive content. There will be more that's going to be about that. It's going to be more like these typical episodes that were focused on one film. So you can find that link on our website, or you can go to Patreon and search Collective Nightmares. As I said, we're on Instagram, Collective Nightmares, Twitter, Collective Twitter, Night, Collect Night, N-I-G-H-T. And is that everything? Yeah, I think that's it. You want to do emails? Laura at CollectiveNightmares.com and Marshall at CollectiveNightmares.com. All right. And do we know... Next time, I think our next film is Class of 84. Yeah. Check out our Patreon and our other episodes. And we've still got Wiener Dog and was Lagier's, what, what was Lagier April, which now that it's the end of July has turned into, <laughs> I said Lagier quarter, but it's actually not because that would be three months and this is like four yeah. leaking into five. So maybe it will be Lagier this half of 2018. <laughs> I don't really know. Middle, middle half right. of 2018. <laughs> And I forgot the name of the movie. Ghostland. Ghostland, yes. So those episodes are coming at you soon-ish? Or hopefully this goes up first. Otherwise, they're already there because we have a backlog is what we're saying. Oh, right. All right. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Thanks for listening. Horror films are our collective nightmares. I feel like um, we're missing something, but I'm drawing a blank on what. You didn't talk about Marcus. Maybe that's it. We didn't. You're right. <laughs> Every once in a while. I guess. I guess that's it. Yeah, it's basically the everyday life of a vampire. <laughs> <laughs> in uh, small town Pennsylvania. All right. All right. Let's Good go night. to bed. Yeah.